fill-in host for tonight, Stephen Heiner, uh, filling in for Justin Soder, uh, who has some uh, personal things to take care of today. And I'm joined by Father Anthony Cicada, uh, Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Father, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Stephen, as usual. And, and it's just us. Unfortunately, Bishop Sanborn is ill, and, and uh, Justin is out, so our audience is going to have to make do with us. So this is this will perhaps be part of their Lenten penance. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> this episode, as is the case for all of our non-sponsored episodes, is free for the first 15 minutes to non-members. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit restorationradionetwork.com. Go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. If you are not a member and would like to purchase an individual episode, such as this one, go to restorationradionetwork.com, navigate to the available episode of your choice, and simply click the links below the player on the page. After completing your purchase, you will be emailed a secure download link. On this episode, we're going to be discussing, um, shall we say, the the ongoing auto demolition, um, if to, to, to take an old phrase, of uh, even what is left of the, the Novus Ordo sect, the conciliar church, as some people call it. Um, and we're going to start by talking about some unfinished business from the last episode, uh, something that uh, was mentioned by Bishop Sanborn in passing, but there wasn't enough time to get into it because as it is, I think you'd already uh, spent as as normal for this show, Father, a lot of time. And this was on Francis welcoming a same-sex couple, uh, transsexual and, and wife. Can you tell us a little bit more about this story? Well, um, this... Um uh, came to light uh, the end of last month, the end of January, and it appears that um, it's certain that uh, uh, Francis uh, had been contacted by uh, someone who had had a, a, a woman from South America who had had a uh, what is called gender reassignment uh, surgery. So she was uh, physically altered. Uh, in such a way as to resemble a man. So uh, then she uh, decided as well to uh, contract a marriage, quote, uh, unquote, with with a woman, uh, with a real woman. So in any event, this uh, person felt that, uh, this transsexual felt that she had been um, uh, somehow left outside uh, the church ever since uh, she had undergone this this surgery. So she contacted uh, Francis, 
And uh, Francis decided to receive her, so he received her on January 24th at the uh, at the Vatican. And as a result of this, she said, "Well, you know, because of this, now uh, my my spirit is it is it is at peace." So uh, th- those are the essential uh, facts of the issue. But if obviously uh, this is something that's completely outrageous that uh, Francis would do something like this because it uh, gives a, uh, a type of personal approval to mutilation and to a form of perversion. So it's, it's, it's on those two, uh, the, uh, those two levels from a moral point of view that the, there's a problem, mutilation and then uh, sexual perversion. But Jen, the, the the people who go in for uh, operations like this uh, generally are people who have psychological problems, uh, deep psychological problems, and uh, the uh, idea of um, allowing them to uh, undergo surgery in order to uh, act out their psychological and their moral problems uh, as well is something that's outrageous enough. But for Francis to receive such uh, a person is a sign of approval, obviously. And that's how the uh, press took it, and that's certainly how this unfortunate person took it. Well, yeah, and I was struggling just to keep up as just now, Father, as you were explaining, because I was thinking, is this person a he? Is it a she? And um, and I was confused a bit because it remembered originally uh, how uh, this guy had started. Um, and it's quite unfortunate. But this goes back to something you've talked about on Francis Watch from almost the beginning, and that Bishop Sanborn has echoed, that he's here to make a mess. And these issues are not simple issues. As you say, there's psychological issues, and, and there is a way that the church deals with things like this, but it's not like this, not in a public event which creates and sows confusion in the minds of the faithful. This is uh, from, uh, certainly from a moral point of view, the tremendous confusion this, um, uh, this, this uh, brings into people's minds when they hear about an incident like this, because obviously by doing this, he is connoting uh, some sort of approval and is saying, you know, well, this this is fundamentally all right. And also, and so doing that, other unfortunate people who uh, have psychological problems of, of this uh, same nature then feel affirmed that there's, there's uh, nothing wrong with their psychological condition. And... Uh, that they that the Holy Father approves the idea of them them acting out, acting this this uh, out and getting themselves mutilated. So it's, it's, it's uh, terrible from so many points of view. And I suppose that's something that we also have observed in this in the the new Bergolian era is not just destruction for Catholics, the, the, the remainder of believing Catholics who are somehow still within the structures of the Novus Ordo sect, that they're being scandalized and their faith is being challenged. But worse, people who aren't Catholic, who, who in, a, in a previous uh, age may have been edified by the church's stance on things and been led to, to conversion, are now being affirmed in their errors 
and this is just yet another way that this is happening. Yeah, I, I uh, came across an example of this uh, just about 10 days ago that uh, I was talking to a, uh, a high school student whose, whose parents uh, ended up sending him to a conservative school uh, that has a uh, uh, number of, of uh, uh, Protestants on the faculty. And Francis was being uh, criticized, uh, rightly, uh, by the Protestants who was running one of the, the history courses in the school for doing this, uh, for doing precisely this, that this was a terrible thing, that, you know, the um, uh, this, this Pope Francis would approve something like this, and it just... Uh, it just should show you uh, how wrong the idea of the infallibility of the Pope is. Mm. So, I mean, non-Catholics are drawing the conclusion. Well, the meantime, the fellow uh, Catholics, we might say, or people who are con- consider themselves conservative, were taking some sort of solace in uh, synod documents not being fully approved or uh, shadow approval, but it wasn't explicit. We found out actually that um, Bergoglio did approve of the the document in question, um, and this is from a, a story from Rate Chaley in January. The quote is from Bergoglio: "These three points received an absolute majority. They were therefore not rejected with a no, as they received more than 50% approval." They are therefore issues that still need to be developed. We as a church want a consensus. These texts can be modified, that's clear. Once there has been further reflection, they can be modified. Well, Father, can you please decode for us um, developed, quote-unquote, and reflection, (laughs) (laughs) quote-unquote? Those are, uh, again, that is the typical modernist code, <laughs> you know, and you, you've hit the nail on the head. That's what it is. It doesn't take, I guess, a special decoder ring uh, for this to figure out what's going on. But um, the background in the situation, of course, is is the uh, awful uh, document that was issued in the middle of the Senate. Uh, and it had a number of uh, three propositions in it that uh, – uh, did not receive the requisite two-thirds majority for the document at the end of the synod, but uh, Bergoglio insisted that these propositions be uh, included with the general synod report that uh, that was sent out. So what this, this particular statement that we've come across is, is saying from Car- Cardinal uh, Baldessari, I believe, who's the secretary of the Senate, is that these points are to be developed and discussed. In other words, the issue is not uh, uh, the issue on on communion for the divorce and uh, for uh, so-called same-sex couples, that that these issues are not uh, by any means closed because they didn't receive the two-thirds majority, but that our beloved Holy Father wants these issues to be discussed. So, in other words, uh, uh, he's not taking them off the table. Hmm. So that's why he put them out there, and that's what this uh, uh, this statement means. Whenever they talk about development um, uh, or reflection, uh, you know that, that something's up. 
the uh, the antenna are twitching uh, when those words come out. Definitely. Yes, that's right. <laughs> there's um there's a story. Speaking of antenna twitching, there's a story about palliums, and I have to I have to confess, Father, I I love the pallium. I I love the, the the history behind it. And before we get into how Bergoglio is is again messing with uh, with a tradition, can you give our listeners a bit of a history as to what the pallium is, uh, how they make it, what it signifies before we get yeah, into the story. The, the pallium is a liturgical vestment that is worn by an archbishop. Uh, and the uh, it's, uh, it's made out of white wool, uh, wool taken from lambs blessed by the Pope on, on the feast of, of St. Agnes. And it consists of a uh, circle of uh, white wool with crosses on it that is uh, worn loosely around the shoulders of an archbishop over his his mass vestments and uh it uh there's also uh, uh another piece hanging down in the front it's very narrow it's maybe 4 inches 4 inches wide uh, a piece hanging down in the front and a piece hanging down in the back and these have generally have red uh, crosses on them, and they're pinned to the exterior of the mass vestments of uh, of an archbishop, and it's a sign of um, a number of things: his his special um, uh, his uh, special authority or status as the metropolitan, that is to say, as a uh, bishop of the chief city within a, a particular region. And it is also a sign of his um, union with uh, union with the Holy Father in Rome. So it's a very significant um, uh, significant investment, and uh, you can only wear it uh, when you uh, are actually a residential archbishop. In other words, when you're the the head of a uh, uh, diocese. If you retire from being the head of a diocese, you may no longer wear it. You may be buried with it, but uh, wearing it. But you, uh, it's considered such a powerful symbol of authority that uh, unless you actually possess the uh, authority, you don't wear it. I remember visiting Archbishop Lefebvre once uh, at the SSPX uh, General House, which was in uh, Reckenbach in Switzerland. And one of the fathers there convinced uh, the archbishop to take out uh, his uh, box of mementos. He was talking about the different things he he received. And one of the things that he showed us was the uh, pallium. And uh, he said that, um, uh, you know, I can't, uh, the the next time I wear it, I'll be dead. (laughs) (laughs) So, So that was where I learned that particular uh, that particular fact. So it's 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 a very special. Um, uh, it is a very special symbolism. So so when the archbishop received it, so prior to Vatican II, when he would receive it, what what would be the ceremony? Would it would it happen well, you, you there? Would, uh, would it happen? It's it, it's actually the the interesting thing about the episode is is that it was. Um, blessed in Rome, and then uh, you could either receive it in Rome, or it would be brought to you by a representative of the Pope, and you would be invested in it. So that was the, uh, in other words, in your in your home diocese. So what happened, though, is that uh, under 
uh, JP2, uh, he got the idea that, well, um, uh, I want to use this as um, uh, some sort of a sign that uh, uh, to reinforce the idea that I want to centralize things a little bit more. So he changed the ceremony and uh, turned it into an investiture where you had to come to Rome if you were a metropolitan or an archbishop to receive it. So the the uh, that was the uh, existing or that was the rule uh, to which JP two uh, made everyone adhere. Now uh, Bergoglio has uh, changed it back uh, to uh, the the pallium uh, being something that is received uh, in one's own uh, diocese. Back in your diocese. Now the thing is that why? Well, is Bergoglio a big respecter of tradition? Is this, you know, a <laughs> these are, big these restoration? Are these are You have to be excited about uh, Bergoglio ushering a new era of tradition. Uh, yeah, and and I, I personally, I'm waiting for the tiara, you know, to, <laughs> to come back in. So, but no, the idea is that um, uh, his program of of uh, synodality. And of uh, undercutting the the real importance of uh, the office of of the Roman Pontiff, and wanting to localize authority. Now, the the uh, code word that he has used from the beginning for that that we've we've uh, latched onto that we noticed right away was the synodality. Uh, the idea is, is that the, the the schismatic Greeks have synods, and this should be a good idea for the uh, Roman Church as well. So the authority of the Holy See should be decentralized, decentralized. So uh, symbolically, that's what's going on here. Uh, and in fact, the master of, of uh, ceremonies for. Um, uh, Francis, the Monsignor uh, Marini, said that um, explicitly said this is a uh, reflection of synodality. So that's it's it's a uh, symbolic way for Bergoglio to put into practice his um, uh, program. Well, uh, that's definitely not a, a way for people to hold on hope that uh, the famine will then be coming back after the the pallium uh, returns to to local uh uh prescription and as, as, especially not the ostrich feather fans because i think that would be against the upcoming encyclical on environmentalism <laughs> which we will get to later in today's episode oh i'm sure indeed we will but i i think the ostriches are safe that's our conclusion here. Well, as long as they keep their heads in the sand, I suppose ostriches are always safe, <laughs> Father. A wonderful symbol. <laughs> uh, um, new, uh, new structures and old structures. There's a story from MondayVatican.com, uh, which refers to um, will there be a, a revolution around Bergoglio. And, I, and this is a word we hear with Bergoglio very often, revolution or revolutionary, and it's used both by the secular media and even by the, the so-called conservative Novus Ordo media. And uh, they use St. Peter's as the analogy to explain this. And, and the text from the story reads, it can be explained this way. During the construction of the current Basilica of St. Peter in the 16th century, 
The old basilica was only gradually dismantled, step by step, while it was replaced with the new building. This is the way... <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to... Yeah, it's this. crazy. This is the way Pope Francis works, by establishing new structures around the currently existing structure, which is then removed once the new structure is complete. I suppose I... Even this analogy fails because we know that St. Peter's was built around the tomb of St. Peter, which is still front and center when you go under the Baldacchino. So, yes, the old church was small and it was mostly dilapidated, but St. Peter's was still centered around the old church. They didn't cart off uh, the old structure of St. Peter when the church no, was done. No, but so, uh, at one point in the analogy, it might be correct because the uh, when the uh, uh, pope who decreed the construction of St. Peter's went down uh, into the hole in the ground to uh, bless the uh, structure for the new church, the um, uh, everything nearly collapsed on him. <laughs> so mm. I think if they want to use that part of the analogy, they're certainly correct. <laughs> um, but the... Uh, the point that that this Vaticanista, this Vatican expert, um, is making is is uh, is this: that there have been complaints that Bergoglio is not moving fast enough uh, to uh, introduce changes into the uh, into the Roman Curia. Now it's it's only what it's only two years this March, right? If I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. So, um, but. Uh, what the Vaticanist is, is saying is that uh, he is uh, uh, kind of using what is there and then constructing uh, something new. And then when uh, once he's, he's, he's got his uh, particular institutions in place, he will get rid of the old ones. We can see that, uh, practically speaking, this is this is true because uh, of what he did with uh, this um, by uh, establishing this uh, Council of Cardinals, that he um, this was an institution that he himself uh, created to introduce changes in the church. He started with eight, and I think there 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 are nine now. Uh, so this is this is a, uh, a new institution for reform, and may end up who knows as like a permanent type of advisory board. Then you have the institution of the synod. The synod was a um, uh, was something that was talked about uh, during the time of Paul VI, uh, and it was envisioned uh, by many as an expression of the Vatican II doctrine of, of uh, collegiality, which Bergoglio would call synodality. But uh, it ended up being mostly sort of a like the Supreme Soviet. Uh, sort of a rubber stamp uh, body. But Bergoglio wants to give it uh, some sort of a, a, a real life uh, of, his, uh, of its own as an institution. So he's, uh, he had one session of the pre-Synod. Now he's going to have another in October. So what he's do, uh, doing is he's setting up an expectation that there's going to be this new sort of permanent uh, institution in uh, the post-Vatican II church to implement the great vision of the council. So that's what's going on, and 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 uh, the the Vaticanista's assessment of it, I think, is absolutely uh, absolutely correct. Something new is being uh, 
constructed. Well, and and yet even as he's saying this, and he continues to create uh, new cardinals all the time, you want to put your men in power, obviously, if you have a vision. He wants to make sure that these new cardinals get uh, where where the fire needs to be directed. And there was a homily that was given a couple weeks ago, or in February, at the end of February, as the show is being recorded and before it will be broadcast. Around the 15th, uh, National Catholic Reporter uh, put a, uh, a story out about this homily, and the translation reads, um, a, a, a summary of the, of the homily reads, Francis knows firsthand that a number of men who wear miters on their heads are among those most scandalized by the way that, quote, Jesus revolutionizes and upsets that fearful, narrow, and prejudiced mentality, unquote, characteristic of certain religious leaders. He has seen it by the near fanatical and hostile way some of them and their theological experts have tried to annihilate proposals, which the Pope has encouraged, that seek to reconcile all variety of Catholic, quote-unquote, outcasts with their church, most especially those currently excluded from its sacramental life. Again, we have that code that we're, we're looking out for you divorced and, and, and remarried and, and homosexuals. We are going to integrate you. Uh, it won't be too much longer. Uh, that's uh, exactly what is going on here. He is sending out the signals. Um, what he expects in the um, the cardinals that uh, he has appointed, and certainly what he expects in members of uh, the hierarchy, the bishops, uh, that um, he expects them to go along with the program. Some of them have had uh, difficulties, as it were, getting this particular memo. Uh, The Archbishop of Cincinnati, whose name I think is, is... I think it's Dennis Schnur. He said that it uh, uh, he got himself involved last year in a controversy where he uh, tried to uh, impose uh, certain moral standards on teachers in uh, Catholic schools uh, with the understanding that they would not, uh, in their uh, uh, lives and in their their statements public statements at least, oppose um, Catholic uh, doctrinal and moral teaching. I don't know, I do not recall exactly how that was uh, resolved here, but obviously he was uh, someone who was behind the times. The Archbishop of San Francisco, uh, Cordelione, uh, he tried something like this a few weeks ago, morality clauses, they call them in um, a, uh, uh, for uh, Catholic school teachers, and there was a huge blowback uh, from the politicians over something like this. And sure enough, he backed down, which is, is uh, really something, his, his, his name in Italian I think means lion-hearted, and he was more chicken-hearted and then he was lying harder when it came to this issue because he folded virtually right away. Confirms um, what someone said in the 60s, that God must have loved spineless bishops because he made so many of them. So, <laughs> well, so, the, the, uh, so uh, uh, Francis is telegraphing the message 
to people and people like Cordelione and um, Schnur and uh, the rest have to get the message. Well, and again, one of these interest groups, shall we shall we call them, or lobbying groups, is the the divorced and remarried uh, people who are currently denied communion, unless, of course, the uh, uh, the the Argentinian gentleman makes a phone call to your house and tells you it's perfectly fine for you to go. Uh, the I want to step back for a minute, and again, and I know you've addressed this, Bishop Sandboard, but I think it bears repeating: Why is there such an attack? On marriage, marriage, the sacrament that we know binds uh, families together, the marriage, a sacrament that that the church was willing to let an entire country leave over uh, in the time of Henry VIII. Why is this such a battleground issue? Uh, well, simply because the uh, modern society, the the tip. Uh, the typical secular man of today, and with him the uh, Catholic in the post-Vatican II Church who has accepted the uh, values of, of modern secular society, uh, has this uh, idea, uh, rather no longer has the idea that, that marriage is uh, a sacrament that, that, that's uh, an, an institution uh, primarily intended for the uh, continuation of the propagation of the human race, but they have transposed other values onto it, other false values onto it. So uh, as, a, uh, as a result of that, you have contraception. Uh, as a result of, of uh, that, you have um, the... Um, or you have, have other ideas that... that uh, the, uh, marriage is, is simply an institution uh, which is a uh, based on the union of affection between two people, and if that affection no longer exists, then one is 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 free to uh, break that marriage up and go and marry someone else. So it's from the acceptance of the false values of modern pagan society that um, uh, all of these these issues. Are uh, being are being raised. Well, and you've you've come on to one of the stories that we we wanted to look at. It was uh, published in Chiesa about the idea of if the value of marriage is for love, then if the love dies, then the marriage can die a death. You can euthanize the marriage as well. And the the quote from the story. Since the Catholic Church already provides for the possibility of new sacramental marriages in the case of the death of a spouse, thus recognizing an irreversible failure of the first marriage that does not infringe the principle of indissolubility, one might imagine that it could arrive at accepting the possibility of new marriages in the face of evidence of irreversible failures due to the death of love, the death of the relationship, and the transformation of life together into a daily hell. Sounds like a Sartre play. I, I, you know, what um, what's to be done here? And I suppose, parenthetically, you might mention the Orthodox have allowed divorce for many years, and a lot of people sometimes have this illusion that we may get reunited with the Orthodox because we only differ on filioque or only on the papacy. It's like, well, there's a lot of other stuff we actually. This is what happens when you detach yourself from the Holy Father is you develop a lot of other diseases as well, and they've been okay with divorce for a long time. 
Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, yes, indeed. And in fact, the um, uh, there have, have uh, been articles since uh, since and and in fact before the synod demonstrating that what the Orthodox were up to in allowing f- uh, for the so-called second marriages was in fact. Um, something that was uh, ultimately a violation of their own laws and traditions, if you look uh, uh, far back enough. Um, One (coughs) other uh, point in this regard that uh, I found rather rather striking when it comes to the issue of uh, divorce and remarriage, that, of course, the the indissolubility of marriage is uh, something that's part of the divine law, and uh, it is uh, the teaching that that, that uh, once a marriage is a sacramental marriage, it uh, cannot be dissolved by any power on earth, and that's why you have the uh, refusal of uh, uh, the sacraments to those who uh, are in a second uh, marriage, and who um, uh, in a second marriage, and who um, uh, decide to continue to use the marital rights uh, to sexual intercourse to which they don't really have a right. Well, all of this is, is, uh, is hinges on divine law. Uh, the rather surprising thing was a statement by uh, the Cardinal Baldessari, who is actually the secretary. So he uh, made public statement on the uh, uh, 29th of January uh, talking about this question of of second marriages and he uh, compared the uh, situation uh, for persons in a second marriage to how the church treated uh, dispensations from the priest's uh, promise of celibacy. So this struck me as as particularly crazy, and it, it it shows either the the level of cynicism of this man or the level of his ignorance, because the prohibition uh, against uh, someone who is divorced and uh, remarried, uh, the prohibition against uh, such a person receiving uh, the Holy Eucharist is based on divine law. Because the, the sacramental marriage is is indissoluble. The first marriage is a matter of divine law, as long as the first spouse is uh, alive. And if uh, the, the uh, spouse, if one of the spouses, is, has uh, remarried uh, and uh, goes to receive the sacraments, he's not to be given the sacraments because that also violates the divine law about worthiness for the reception of the Eucharist. So there there, there are this is the the prohibition is based on uh, the teaching of our Lord Himself and the teaching of Saint Paul. In th- what Baldessari was talking about is how the Church changed uh, her practice on a priest who left the priesthood and got married. So he he said that well you know at one point the Church excommunicated these guys and at another point uh, the uh, church uh, allowed them to receive the sacraments as long as they did X, Y, and Z. And then another point, they dispensed them from their vows and everything was okay and they could function as uh, permanent members of the church. But the problem is the analogy simply doesn't hold because the uh, uh, prohibition 
uh, against a um, priest marrying is a matter of ecclesiastical law, which could be changed. It could be changed, and it, it had uh, it has been changed in the case of the the Eastern Rite priests. However, the pro, prohibition against a second marriage and of against unworthily receiving the Eucharist those are both matters of divine law. So the the the, the fact that Baldessari would say something uh, so off the wall like this, as I say, is it's it, it, it either shows that he's he's cynical and he knows that he's talking with people who are really stupid. Or he is really stupid and ignorant himself and can, can't tell the difference between uh, a fundamental distinction between uh, church law and the divine law. Well, it wouldn't be the first time that we, we ran into uh, less than an intelligent uh, gentleman uh, caught up in this apparatus, would it, Father? Uh, no, it certainly wouldn't. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, incompetence, um, we saw that these uh, wascally wabbits got uh, walked back uh, in an Angela statement. Um, I guess I guess you can't uh, you can't really get away with insulting uh, people who like to have children or who consider it uh, God's command to have children. The Vatican, Vatican Insider had a had a uh, link to this uh, to this story, and and the quote reads: "The birth rate doesn't even reach one percent." If a generous family of children is viewed as if it were a burden, there is something wrong. As the encyclical Humanae Vitae of Blessed, not Blessed, obviously, Paul Paul VI teaches, but having more children cannot be automatically viewed as an irresponsible choice. The choice to have children, the choice to not have children is selfish. So we, we, put, those, we put those rabbits back away, didn't we, Father? Uh, <laughs> yes, we did with a good laugh. Uh, he, uh, this man runs off at the mouth, and and uh, he um, says things that are indiscreet and that are uh, theologically stupid. He does this all the time. Uh, as we say, on one hand, he's he's uh, very clever in terms of his his overall goal, but uh, he is. Uh, really a loose cannon in uh, many other respects because obviously he offended a great number of people with large families when, with his his rascally rabbit remark. So uh, he had to uh, backpedal on that. I'd hate to be his spokesman. I'd hate to, hate to be Father Lombardi. I mean, I know Lombardi is a Jesuit and uh, uh, you know, surely as such knows how to weasel around things. But uh, Bergoglio's <laughs> really a handful. And the the latest thing that he did is he managed to offend the Mexicans by uh, writing to an Argentine saying that, well, what we have to avoid is the, the Mexicanization of Argentina. <laughs> you know, you would think that the guy would have, have some diplomatic finesse or common sense but uh no it's 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 his uh, uh it seems his mouth doesn't have an emergency break <laughs> yeah we we've we've moved on from rabbits to burritos i suppose and <laughs> I think uh, so. you know the the man will the man will move on to something else at some point obviously uh part of this uh, the idea behind you know obviously we're joking about rabbits but this idea again comes to this notion of choice, I suppose, that uh, a marriage and children is less a command 
and something pleasing to God and something that you submit yourself to in, in faith, then it is a choice made by responsible people about society, right? And if that's the case, then your, let your conscience be your guide. And I have to be careful here, Father, because as Catholics, we do have a very important perspective on conscience. So I, I want to mm-hmm. preface this discussion by saying, when I say follow your conscience, what's the Catholic interpretation of that? Before we, we talk about what, what the modernists try to layer onto that. Well, the idea is, is that the conscience is used to apply the moral law. And the uh, source of the moral law is the teaching uh, of the church, that this is, the, um, uh, uh, this is where you get the, the wherewithal to discern, as the modern um, word uh, goes, between uh, what is, is right and, and what is wrong, what is prudent, what is imprudent, uh, etc., so the, the, the conscience is, is the tool that, that applies the moral law. It's not something autonomous in and of itself. Well, if that's the case, what do modernists want us to think that liberty of conscience means? Well, uh, that we have the right to um, uh, not only make, uh, as they would say, moral choices, uh, to apply principles, but that we get to create the principles ourselves, that the uh, a conscience, uh, the individual conscience is uh, supreme in the sense that it decides uh, what is uh, right and what is wrong, that the individual conscience uh, is, is uh, in effect the originator of the principles. And believe it or not, this was uh, something that even Ratzinger, B-16, uh, talked about. Uh, that, and this is a part and parcel of uh, the modernist program, that the conscience must be ob- uh, obeyed above all else. But they don't see it as a faculty for applying something. Uh, they see it as some sort of an end in itself, and some sort of a, a principal producer in itself. That it's 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 the it is the the uh, uh, source for the principles that it applies. So I want to take these this discussion and relate it to Gaudium et Spes, the last episode, and and the role of conscience within that. Um, what what can what is what is uh, can we report about that, Father? Well, the uh, yeah, we had a very uh, interesting discussion about that the last time, and that was in fact one of the um, uh, one of the points of, of uh, Gaudium et Spes. The, uh, the quote is: "Man has in his heart a law inscribed by God. To obey it is the very dignity of man. According to it, he will be judged. Conscience is the most secret core and sanctuary of man." There he is alone with God, whose voice echoes in his depth. So what you have here is a, it's a clever f- a formulation that, yeah, sure, God writes his law in our heart, but the um, idea 
here, there, uh, he, man, is alone with God whose voice echoes in his depth. Uh, the, uh, there you have this, uh, uh, this idea uh, implicit that the uh, individual makes the determination on, uh, on right and wrong. And, of course, this was the um, uh, rallying cry of those after Vatican II who rejected so much of the Church's teaching. They say, well, in, uh, now in my, my conscience, uh, I can't uh, accept the prohibition against contraception. Or that uh, in my conscience, I think that um, my uh, first marriage was, uh, uh, was invalid and I'm going to act accordingly. And my conscience is supreme, and that's going to be my norm for moral action, for moral decisions. So that's, that's, that's what you have. And it's um, uh, interesting that uh, there was there another book uh, published recently on this by um, someone named Margaret Burke Sullivan, uh, who uh, talks uh, about, uh, who, who analyzes this, this um, supremacy of, of conscience uh, notion in, in Vatican II, and that who uh, applies it to Francis and what he's doing. We want to remind you that you are listening to Francis Watch on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me today is Father Anthony Ciccata, Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great, Roman Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. So far today, we've been discussing same-sex couples, transgendered people, wabbits, burritos, palliums, or as we say in Bergoglio land, Tuesday. Uh, let's let's move on because Father, if we're having an entire radio show discussing these problems, we have to think that the conservative Novus Ordo people are not taking this lying down, nor are those who are on Bergoglio's wavelength missing an opportunity to shout down these people. So we're watching this cacophony of rebellion, but uh, none of them none of them are really supporting Catholic teaching. Uh, the conservatives are talking about quote-unquote resistance. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> and uh, then we have the uh, the people attacking people who, in a certain way, they're sort of defending Catholic teaching because they're thinking, well, you're not supposed to resist the Pope, and, and the, the, no, the conservative is actually painted in, in the light of the schismatic. Can you walk us through some of these internecine uh, battles, Father? Sure. Uh, the, the most obvious one is Cardinal Burke, uh, whom we've discussed a couple of other times here on um, on Francis Watch, that uh, he uh, had very, very critical remarks uh, against the, the Synod, and in effect against Francis, and he was, uh, as a result, cashiered from his, his job as, as the head of the uh, Church's Supreme Court, the Apostolic Signatura, uh, because of that, but uh, now that he is, as it were, uh, uh, absolved from uh, sort of an organizational loyalty based on his his job there, he's actually is talking about uh, resisting Bergoglio and uh, uh, resisting Francis if the, the teaching on. Um, Sacraments to the divorce and, and remarried is uh, is changed, and he uh, gave an interview, which um, 
appeared in, in English in translation in, in uh, uh, Rorate. And uh, the interviewer asked him, well, uh, if Pope Francis insists on this path, what will you do? And Burke re replies, uh, I'll resist. Uh, I cannot do anything else. There's no doubt that this is a difficult time. This is clear. Uh, this is clear. So he's he, he's getting flack from uh, there from someone who is um, uh, rather prominent. We always say in our own discussions uh, among ourselves, the clergy, that if um, uh, we notice all of these things uh, and and talk about them, one wonders what is being said at the. Uh, dinner tables of, of, of priest bishops, archbishops, and uh, cardinals and curial officials inside the Novus Ordo Church. Uh, that uh, there must be really quite a, uh, a hot discussions uh, going on. That the pro and con, you know, a dissent like like uh, Burke, and um, uh, you. Uh, find then in um, another incident where the Cardinal Archbishop of Washington Whirl, uh, he uh, explicitly attacks Burke and uh, as, as dissenting against the Holy Father. And uh, he said, uh, talks about, um, uh, you know, that, well, there have been dissenters against uh, the Holy Father in the, the past, against the Pope in the past, and they disagree with the Pope because he doesn't agree with them, and um, uh, that uh, these critiques and challenges are, are just part of the normal uh, course of affairs. So he even took a shot at uh, Burke for wearing the, the long uh, cardinalatial uh, cape called the Capamania. So it was, was uh, quite something. But the idea that the Cardinal Archbishop of Washington would uh, attack another cardinal in the press is something that's really significant. There's something that's going on under the surface. Uh, and they get a... Um, uh, their uh, other bishops um, have uh, weighed in against some of the things that Bergoglio has, has uh, said. The uh, Bishop of... Uh, 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 retired bishop and uh, archbishop in Kazakhstan uh, published a uh, published a critique of of uh, some of the proposals, and um, there's an uh, African uh, cardinal. Well, you can't who talk to the Africans. This is just this is just voodoo. Right? Well, yeah, you it's know. it's it's a different <laughs> culture, you know. It, it's you not even worth to. mentioning. Right? <laughs> so, so, so it's, I, I believe that was Cardinal Casper's little. A Teutonic insight into uh, the people below the equator, but he's <laughs> the the African cardinal talking about this this business of um, um, uh, saying that well doctrine is one thing and and pa pastoral practice is another. Uh, this uh, uh, particular uh, cardinal said that um, the to detach the doctrine and and pastoral practice, uh, the idea that it would consist in placing the magisterium in a nice box by detaching it from practical uh, pastoral practice, which could evolve according to circumstances, fads, and passions, is a form of heresy, a dangerous schizophrenic pathology. 
I affirm solemnly that the Church of Africa will firmly oppose every rebellion against the teaching of Christ in the Magisterium. So that's pretty hot stuff. Well, and I'm sure that Bishop Sanborn will be gratified to know that even though he couldn't appear on the program, that this African cardinal was happy to say the age. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Your eminence step up to the plate here. <laughs> uh, he said, but, he said know, the word, he, he said the H word. Yeah, he said the H word is heresy. And um, so this is this is extraordinary, but there's another interesting thing here that um, – we might return to a little bit next month, but since we're talking about the African cardinal, um, Cardinal uh, uh, Marx, the Reinhard Marx, who is the, the uh, uh, German cardinal, uh, was talking about the uh, German bishops' conference and uh, their particular attitude towards um, uh, their particular attitude toward. Uh, the divorce, question of the divorce and and, and uh, remarriage and so on. And um, he just um, had a um, uh, made a statement a few days ago that appeared in Rate saying that, well, you know, the Germans were not a Roman subsidiary and we'll, we'll preach the gospel on our own here and that uh, it's uh, our bishop's conference is responsible for uh, you know, taking care of the people in its culture. And so we will shape pastoral care for people in our culture here, uh, basically the way that we want to, because we understand the culture. Well, the so he's got that idea. He's going to allow uh, divorce and uh, uh, sacraments for the divorce and remarriage. The African cardinal is against it. He's going to say it's heresy, but that's the response in the new church to that as well that's his culture so that in in africa um you can't have this um uh, divorce and remarriage because it's something against the culture what you get down to uh, in uh, when 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 you dive through uh statements like this uh the idea is is that uh, each culture in effect has a, a way of uh determining morality that there's a a, a culture specific theology or culture specific truth when it comes to doctrine and morality they said uh, um this also came up in the uh, one of the discussions in national catholic reporter about cardinal tegel from the philippines um uh, that uh, he's uh, regarded as someone who is a uh, um, uh, successor in, uh, to Bergoglio, and that he, he has the qualities for this. And they said about him that, well, he has an Asian sensibility when it comes to theology. So there's a, a, as if there is a, a German theological sensibility, which comes to one set of conclusions, and a an African set, which comes to another, and an Asian set, which comes to another. So that that these things are conditioned by uh, these things are conditioned by uh, culture. So I might as well say that I have since my grandfather's. A paternal grandfather's side of the family, Slovene, that I have a Slovene uh, theological sensibility, which is clearly sure. Montaigne in the extreme. 
Well, possibly, but I, I think it's probably tied up with hating Croatians and Serbs, but I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. So, <laughs> so the uh, idea here is uh, to get back to our buddy, the African Cardinal, that um, uh, the way the system works in seems to work in the new church is that culture affects all of these these uh, truths and these moral principles. Well, and it's not just these uh, so-called uh, ecclesiastics that are making the noise. We will always hear from lay people, including our, our good friend, Dr. Roberto De Mattei. And mm-hmm. we've been getting some lay backlash as well. Mm-hmm. And he's been, he's been interesting, hasn't he, Father, because I feel that he has been trying to invent ways to not uh, accept Sedevacantism while demonstrating, at least in some ways... Uh, unwittingly, that Sedevacantism is clearly where he, he's headed intellectually, even though he, he can't accept it. And so he has to throw mm-hmm. up all of these obstacles. So recently he brought back an, an old whipping boy, uh, cum ex apostolatus officio. And I have to be careful here because we're going to be covering this in Trad Controversies, which is my show, uh, later this season. And we can go pretty down down a, a deep rabbit hole with this. So Mm-hmm. Can I ask you just briefly to summarize uh, what cum ex apostolatus officio is and what Dr. De Matei is speaking about uh, in, in, in context, and to our listeners that you will get to hear a deeper discussion of this uh, later this season on Untracked Controversies. Okay, so it's the 16th century. It's post-Reformation. What happened is that um, the... Uh, one of the cardinals, uh, the, who is a papabile, that is to say someone who is a, a uh, uh, would potentially be elected to the Roman pontificate, uh, was believed to be a uh, Lutheran or a Protestant sympathizer, Cardinal Moroni. And the uh, pope who was uh, elected in 1554 was Paul, was Carafa, Paul IV. And uh, uh, Paul IV clapped uh, this Cardinal Moroni in jail, and he uh, promulgated a document, Cum ex postulatus officio, which said that the which which decreed that uh, in effect someone who was uh, who had defected from the Catholic faith could not be validly elected the Roman Pontiff. So if you know a little about Sedevacantism, you can see easily where uh, this would fit into um, uh, part of our understanding of what went on in the Church. So that's uh, in uh, that's basically the background that we're talking about to the Dimitei article. And what does Dimitei have to say about this? Well, I mean, uh, it is uh, quite something. I would just back up, uh, I think, w- one show uh, where... Uh, a month or so ago, Dr. DiMattei brought up the question of um, John the Twenty Second uh, and uh, some statements on John the Twenty Second and the Beatific Vision. I wrote an article on this, and uh, but DiMattei then talked at that point Which about you can find on Quidlibet. On Quidlibet, yeah, uh, at FatherChicada dot com. Uh, the uh, the uh, Dimitri, uh 
raised the, the, the prospect of a pope being a heretic, and that's what he accused John the Twenty Second uh, of uh, adopting in effect. So that was quite a step to see Dimitei uh, use that word with regard to someone who's a Roman pontiff. On the case of John the Twenty Second, he was wrong. But then the next month, he talks about Paul the Fourth, and uh, about the possibility of a, a heretical pope. And he quotes the sections, exactly the sections, in this document that I've quoted in my own article about uh, if it can be shown that uh, someone who's a Roman pontiff has deviated from the Catholic faith or fallen into some heresy, his promotion or elevation, even if it had been uncontested, shall be null, void, and worthless. So he, then he goes on to discuss this, and he says, well, there's debate over... Uh, uh, whether Paul IV's bull is a dogmatic decision or a disciplinary act, whether it is still in vigor, if it has been implicitly abrogated, whether it applies to the Pope who incurs heresy uh, before or after election, and so on. We shall not address these issues. Uh, cum ex postulatus, however, is still an authoritative pontifical document that confirms the possibility of a heretical Pope. So, it, Dr. Matei is uh, uh, obviously is weighing uh, this particular possibility. Otherwise, why would he write about it? And I think that's significant. That um, it, it uh, you get to a point if you understand Catholic theology and Catholic history, where you wonder how can uh, what Bergoglio does and what Bergoglio says. Uh, since it's so outrageous, be reconciled with the idea that he possesses the authority of the Roman pontiff. And that, of course, is precisely the issue that all of us has, has, uh, have faced at one point or another. So I think it's significant that Dimitei is getting to this point. Well, and there's some other people who are commenting as well, but we've still got a lot more to cover and a limited amount of time and a limited amount of uh, voice uh, capacity for you, Father. So I'll, I'll usher us right. along to the really important matters. And, and no, I'm not talking about the loneliness of the old or the unemployment of the young. I'm talking about ecology. Let's focus on the important stuff, Father. So, so let's cut right to it. Um, it turns out that uh, the President of the United States and the EPA have come to, to stand with Francis on climate change. And, or, or, or rather, it should say that all three of these people are speaking with the same voice. Uh, the, the quote from this article, which you can find for, for National Catholic Register online, the faith community's voice is going to be very important here because EPA can talk about the science and reach only so far, said the administrator. We need to get this to the point where people are as comfortable talking about this as they are other international public health threats. And we'll leave that for another time. Um, <laughs> climate change. Uh, this is clearly an important doctrine that needs to be upheld. And, and uh, we, will, we will make sure that deniers uh, get uh, appropriate treatment. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, uh, here you see the... Uh, religious bodies uh, being used as, as as the cheering section for a uh, purely materialist and, and political agenda. 
the idea of the EPA representative, obviously, is that uh, the Vatican should give moral force to uh, this this idea of ecology and the the, the green movement, etc. And that is the uh, purpose of of uh, uh, this particular religious body to animate people to uh, accept this universal principle of uh, ecology and and of saving the earth. So that's that's what's going on here. And Francis and company are only too happy to go along with this and uh, to praise it. The idea being, of course, this gives them cred in the uh, eyes of the secular world and makes them appear relevant to the concerns of, uh, of the sacred world, uh, the, the the secular world. But of course, it's not going to get any converts, unquote, quote unquote, to. Uh, faith in the new church. It's, it's, it's uh, simply another de- desperate attempt uh, to remain relevant in, in some way, shape, or form. Well, and you have to remain relevant, not just with, with words, but with actions. Actions like establishing a new congregation for environmental and, and human ecology. And I suppose <laughs> dioceses will now have to get certified to make sure that uh, they're participating in sustainable practices, make sure that everybody's turning the lights out in the rectory, and nobody's using the dishwasher between the hours of 8 and 5, those sorts of things. I mean, this, this, is, this is the really important stuff that, uh, that needs to be handled when you're not worrying about uh, old people or the young, I suppose. I would say so, but I think the one point in the program that I'd, or this program I'd really be in favor of, would be the idea of uh, uh, getting together all of the uh, copies of the documents of Vatican II and recycling them. I think that would be quite something. <laughs> well, and I, I know I know that you and Bishop Sanborn have a preferred method uh, for disposing uh, of these documents. Uh, it's a, it's rather old fashioned, but it involves. Uh, uh, it involves a bonfire. It involves a big bonfire around that that obelisk in St. Peter's Square. And uh, no, I don't know what that would do to the um, uh, to the ozone layer, but uh, I think that would be something that both he and I would be willing to risk. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was thinking about uh, this story uh, moving away from the all-importance of ecology. I do have to wonder about people who defend this sort of direction. You know, if someone, if if the the New Vatican is speaking about uh, about the importance of ecology, there are people like the folks over at uh, Catholic Answers, or what I like to call non-Catholic Answers. Um, when there's a statement such as apologetics aren't important. I mean, what are you going to do when the man you're trying to defend is trying to unemploy you? And uh, Rarate had a a story on this in January. And uh, there's a lot uh, from the story, but just a few quotes. In the call to the evangelizers, all the churches and ecclesial communities discover a privileged setting for closer cooperation. For this to be effective, we need to stop being self-enclosed, exclusive, and bent on imposing a uniformity based on merely human calculations. Our shared commitment to proclaiming the gospel enables us to overcome proselytism and competition in all their forms. All of us are at the service of the one gospel. Aren't we, Father? 
Well, speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say that my Slovenian theological sensibilities is actually quite different. You can't on this speak point. about the Slovenians. You know, uh, yeah, have yeah. <laughs> you have to take me where I am on the peripheries of Slovenia. The uh, this is a typical Bergoglio stuff. The doctrine is not important. Don't sweat the small stuff when it comes to doctrine. It's all small stuff. It doesn't matter. Uh, as long as we have nice emotive feelings and work together uh, for ecology and uh, for the peripheries and handing out ham sandwiches and needles, clean needles to addicts, that this is really all that that counts. So the he has... Um, uh, you are correct. The the, the idea of, of Catholic answers, uh, these these uh, lay apologetics organizations, he has taken away the need for one of them with with uh, a one blow. That it's simply none of it is important. That uh, it, it is rather the soup kitchens that and maintaining the soup kitchens that are important. The you know, apologetics, fundamental theology. Uh, discussing differences in, in, in doctrine, all this does is keep us out of the soup kitchens from, from slinging that soup. So, uh, <laughs> it, uh, but it's, it's, it's insane. It's like a parody. But uh, you have to step back from it and saying that it, it is a denial of the mission of the church, the mission that Christ gave the church, which is to preach the gospel to every creature. And that those who uh, believe can be saved, and those who don't aren't. So it 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 overthrows absolutely, uh, it overthrows absolutely everything. And he's not ashamed to say something like that. That it doesn't doctrine is not important. Well, doctrine isn't important, nor is it really important whether you're Catholic uh, and. It doesn't matter the context in, in which you, you might witness to, to being Catholic. And one of those particular contexts was the latest in the the orange jumpsuit um, television series, uh, which we, we noticed was the, the death, uh, the, the murdering of uh, 21 Coptic uh, Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was a, an idea of martyrdom. I, I suppose I'll just ask directly, Father, can we consider these people martyrs? Why or why not? And, uh, you know, what's the harm in, in celebrating uh, these people? Well, the, uh, general, uh, the general principle that you hear sometimes in common speech is, is, is it's not the death, but it's the cause that makes the martyr. So th these poor unfortunates were outside of the, the, the bosom of the Catholic Church. They're Copts, uh, and that is a schismatic, um, schismatic group. Uh, who have had a rough life under the Muslims. There's no question about that. For, for centuries, they were quite bitterly persecuted. But that does not make them uh, martyrs, uh, true martyrs, for the sake of, of, uh, of the faith. Otherwise, you would have a situation where the uh, evil intention of, a, um, uh, of the person who slays someone else determines whether you're a martyr or not. So it, it would sort of shift that if, if um, the uh, Ahmed, the crazy with his scimitar, uh, thinks that uh, you're a Christian and slices your head off, that uh, the, the, the intention of, of, of crazy Ahmed makes you the martyr, rather than uh, 
the you belonging to the true faith and then professing it. So it's 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 completely messed up and it's subjective as uh, as usual. But that's how Bergoglio operates. Well, no but, distinctions. Father, you should be fair with, with you know Britain supplying all these jihadis. It might as well be Jack instead of Ahmed. <laughs> So you know, you know, we, we need to be we need to be ecumenical here, whether it's ecumenism of blood or, or, or whatever. Um, oh, see, there's that that cultural question again that's so important. Uh, well, and I, of course, I would be completely mixed up culturally, wouldn't I, Father, with my with my German and Chinese blood uh, living inside? Oh, yeah, that, that that would be. Uh, I wonder how the two sensibilities, the two theological sensibilities, would come out. Of course, I would face that with the Slovenians and the Italians, too, so, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know whatever the sensibility is, they would want to conquer things. Uh, Yes, that's right, they certainly would. (laughs) (laughs) And be successful in doing it, too. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) Francis seems to have been successful in declaring a new uh, saint and doctor of the church, Uh, and don't worry, he doesn't have to be Catholic. Tony Palmer doesn't have to be Catholic. Uh, and can you tell us a little bit about um, Gregory of Narek? Uh Actually, I can't. Uh, he was a, a someone that uh, I was going to do some research on, perhaps for the next show. But the uh, uh, one thing well, what, that, that well, I used to say, what can you tell us, Father? Well, what I can what I can tell you is that uh, he was uh, Armenian, and the Armenians at uh, different points were in and out of uh, schism and in and out of heresy uh, as uh, vis-a-vis the uh, vis-a-vis Rome and it seems that um uh, the time in which this um uh, man lived was a time in which his church was not in communion with uh, with the holy see so uh, the idea that uh, if in fact this is true, the idea that you proclaim someone like this as doctor of the church is, uh, you know, utterly crazy. Which church? Well, maybe uh, that was during his residency before he became a full doctor. You know, uh, he was. Uh, <laughs> you know, mistakes of youth, Father. You need to be a bit more understanding. Yeah, I, maybe he, he wasn't a full doctor yet at that time. I suppose. I, I wonder about his malpractice insurance, though. That's another. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm sure in that part another. of the world, it's, it's not cheap. Is this? I, I guess you would call it making him a doctor of the church. It's like universal health insurance, but it would be Bergoglio Care or something like that. Mm. Maybe that's Boy. the. Uh, I don't. I don't even want to know the implications of Bergoglio Care, but you do. <laughs> but don't worry, contraception is included. That's right. Of course, of course it is. Unless you're a rabbit, unless you're a rabbit, then you're, you're that's a pre-existing condition. I think you're excluded uh, from. Uh, from uh, the, and we're really going down the rabbit hole with this one, so <laughs> I think we should get back to our. <laughs> this is the problem of not having Bishop Stanborn on the show, uh, Father. We don't have anyone to rein us in. You know, yeah, we uh, don't. We don't. So we're, it's, we're running down the rabbit hole together. Just um, terrible. <laughs> Well, every every episode of Francis Watch, and of course, I only occasionally host it uh, because it's it's Justin's show. But uh, we always have what I like to consider the the troll the trads section, which is what can Bergoglio say to insult trads this month? And um, he 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 didn't disappoint. He didn't fail. And uh, his his quote in this section is the reform of the reform is mistaken, which which is somewhat humorous because. 
those of us who, you know, we use use the term traditional Catholic, we, we reject the reform of the reform too. But in a certain way, I can at least respect the reform of the reform within the Novus Ordo construct. If I'm some blind Novus Ordo Catholic who doesn't know anything, or sorry, a Catholic who's trapped within the Novus Ordo who doesn't know any better, yeah, I might be trying to do some reform of the reform. When I was that age, I remember getting the Autoramus Bulletin put out by Father Fessio, and, and they had an editorial by Cardinal Ratzinger, and we were all excited because Cardinal Ratzinger supported the reform of the reform. Uh, well, this is a, a shot against the, the Ratzingerian wing, but as usual, a shot against traditionalists as well. Uh, sure, he he said that the uh, the, the notion, the whole idea is, is uh, uh, mistaken, and that these are really uh, these particular issues are, are side issues, and that uh, some of the people who perform them that there's an imbalance imbalance that uh, imbalance that they have by their interest in these uh, particular issues. So this is you know it's it's. Uh, it's yet another shot. Uh, on the other hand, he said that, uh, well, we have to, in the same speech, he said a lot of crazy things, but he said that we have to recapture the spirit of wonder. Uh, when it uh, 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 that we can't go the reform of the reform route, but we have to recapture the spirit of wonder in liturgy. And all I can say is, I wonder what he's talking about. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't. I'm sure it's uh, something related to surprise uh, theology. Maybe, maybe they're going to introduce trapdoors, and they'll have people jump out at certain times of the liturgy, and that will introduce a sense of wonder. Certainly or wonder bread. Yeah. Right. Uh, but the the um, uh, the idea is 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 uh, again, it's it's uh, uh, taking a shot at people who have. Uh, traditional sensibilities, traditional liturgical sensibilities, which he certainly, which he certainly does not have. So it, it's a, um, uh, it's just something more that's uh, that's thrown in that uh, thrown in that direction. Well, and I, 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 I'll never be accused of not having a Schadenfreude when I when I talk about the Novus Ordo. But we're going to end today's episode by an ominous quote, and it's the quote of "The issue of married priests is on my agenda." Um, you cue the uh, cue the sad music here, uh, Father. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, Francis has hinted about this before. This was the same uh, meeting where he took a uh, shot at the reform of the reform people. He was asked a question about um, married priests in the, in, uh, the Latin Rite. And uh, he, this uh, idea, the problem is present in my uh, agenda. Uh, that means it's, it's something he's thinking about it, and he's given uh, s- signals already that it, it might be possible to have a change here. Uh, remember, there was a, a German missionary bishop in um, Brazil, uh, I believe, uh, last year, uh, if not the, the year before, who visited with Francis and who raised this particular issue. And uh, uh, Francis told this bishop that, well, the uh, uh, he understood that it, uh, that uh, this uh, um, 
ecclesiastical celibacy was uh, uh, purely a question of ecclesiastical law and as something that it could be changed. And uh, he said that the bishops' uh, conferences, this might be something that the bishops' conferences would bring up to him. So I uh, think that by saying this publicly, and he knows it's going to get around, that these are signals to the bishops' conferences uh, who are interested in this sort of thing to go for it and to start making proposals. Who knows, it may come up in October at the Senate. Well, uh, for for our listeners, we want to remind you we are at the end of our program today. In, in the second part of the episode, we've been discussing dissenting bishops, uh, dissenting laymen, ecology, uh, people who aren't martyrs, and how you don't have to be Catholic in order to be a doctor of the church. Uh, these and, and many more uh, discussions will lie ahead, not uh, not just for, for you, Father, but for Bishop Sanborn and Justin as they return to the episode uh, next month. Um, I want to remind listeners that Father is currently seeking organ donors. Uh, no, we're not talking about that kind of organ donation. We're talking about the kind that you want to make. And are you all through the matching funds, Father? Can you tell us about the matching funds initiative? And, and well, someone, um, uh, an anonymous person, uh, actually volunteered to match any donations uh, to up to a grand total of uh, $1,500 for the, the uh, uh, organ fund. And I haven't been able to check the totals recently because I've, I've uh, been in Florida. But um, what this means, practically speaking, is that if you give a $10, that uh, this man will match your $10. If you give 50 he'll match your 50 up to a grand total of, of $1,500. So this is, this is a way for us to... Uh, get um, the funds together that we need to replace this this ancient uh, electronic organ that we have, which actually has punch cards, uh, the, 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 the old uh, computer punch cards, to, uh, to maintain the programs in it. So uh, we're looking for donors. You can uh, donate via our uh, site, sggresources.org there's a, a, a subpage on there for donating to the organ fund so we would uh, encourage you to do that well and, and father what what shall we just out of curiosity what will you do with the organ which is almost as old as i am uh, <laughs> we haven't uh, i haven't quite figured that out yet um we're i offered it to bishop sanborn he doesn't have a um, a place for it. He has one down there already, so we may try to sell it. Uh, and uh, if someone wants to uh, uh, further information on that, he can write to me, care of St. Gertrude the Great, and uh, we can give you some, some details on it. It's an Allen. It still has a, um, uh, still has a, uh, a nice sound to it. It's not going to last forever, but um, it, it would uh, probably give you a couple years of good service. Well, I thought we could offer a trade-in program here, Father. I mean, people want to make a, a donation for the organ. They can come and pick up this old organ and trade for the donation, <laughs> the old one. So, so get value value for money. You're not just giving the donation. Uh, uh, you get to volunteer to haul away the old one, too. Who knows? We're always happy to deal, as as they say in New York, to handle 
that's the Yiddish <laughs> expression, if I'm not mistaken. You have to know how to handle. So, um, uh, you know, so make me an offer, eh? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so. not not that surprising that Father's up on his Yiddish, but uh, please do contribute to the uh, the organ fund. Uh, True Restoration will be making a donation. It's uh, coming up on the end of the month, so we'll be uh, hopping in on that as well. So don't uh, let us be the only ones. Uh, make sure you take advantage, and uh, we'll make sure that Father gets us a recording when we do get the new organ in there uh, of his young virtuosos playing for us. Father, By all means. You, Father, is there anything you'd like to add before we close out today's show? Uh, simply this, that, um, uh, you know, we uh, will continue to keep our, our eyes on the news. There's no dearth of uh, stories about uh, Francis and, and what's going on in in uh, the new church. We're doing the best we can to educate you about that. And the second point I would make is uh, be sure to uh, have a, uh, a good Lent for the rest of your Lent and your Lenten sacrifices, your extra prayers, and uh, your uh, almsgiving so that, God willing, you can come with the rest of us to a joyous Easter. You know, uh, can I just uh, trouble you for one quick question on that, Father? There's Ember Days this week, and someone had asked me, Ember Days, could it get any worse? We're in Lent already. And uh, I thought um, it might be good to ask you, if we're already in the observance of Lent, does observing the Ember Days impose anything additional onto the traditional Lenten fast? Well, on, on, fri- on Fridays, uh, Fridays it, it, it wouldn't, but on the Wednesdays and Saturdays, um, the, uh, everyone, even those not, not bound to uh, fast otherwise, would be bound to partial, uh, partial abstinence, so you could only have, have meat at one meal. Uh, okay. And that's in America. That's the essential. That's the essential uh, distinction. So, uh, geezers like myself or uh, uh, young kids uh, on uh, days like that would be uh, uh, bound to uh, partial abstinence as well. And these these uh, um, uh, prayers are, are are done for the um, uh, for many reasons, but uh, partially also. Uh, to uh, pray for those who uh, uh, were ordained to the uh, priesthood and to the, the uh, orders on uh, different clerical orders on these days. Hmm. Well, thank you for that, Father. And uh, we look forward to hearing you on Work of Human Hands as well, returning to the air next month. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. God bless you. If you have any questions for Father uh, or feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you. Uh, you can you can contact us at FrancisWatch at TrueRestoration.org, and we will pass along your comments and questions to Father Chicada, Bishop Sanborn, Justin as well, obviously. And uh, we would also take this moment to remind you that all correspondence with us is strictly confidential. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the Restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. <laughs>